0: If you have your Bible and want to turn to Psalm 139, I'm going to read it in just a minute. I'm read the question uh, that was given. I have found much comfort and help in Psalm 139 and would love to have even deeper insight into it. Also, why are verses 19 to 22 included here? And I'll just tell you the answer to that is I don't know. Um, but we'll come to those. Verse 23 it says it is encouraging to me to know that even though David, a man after God's own heart, dealt. It is encouraging to me to know that even David, a man after God's own heart, dealt with anxious thoughts. Before I read it, let me say, let me describe uh, an attitude or a, a, a reality. Um, if i if, if, if I pitted my own knowledge of the future of the weather up against a trained skilled meteorologist, I would be sadly lacking. Um, a, a meteorologist is somebody who has a training, they have a passion, they have technology that's unbelievable there's radars and there's satellites and there's all kinds of things by which they can look out uh, and And gather together all of the synopsis of pressure systems and moisture and wind direction. And they can see patterns. And these patterns have become very predictable to them from past performances. And so a meteorologist who knows their stuff literally can see the future I was amazed the other day, I turned on something and they were saying how they were canceling events in Southern California, ball games and and concerts and stuff. And I'm thinking, why are they canceling things? And then they said, there's a hurricane coming, Um, Hillary, I think. Maybe it's here by now, I don't know. But uh, I thought, how amazing. It's, It's a couple of days away and they already know and these people were already taking precautions because these skilled meteorologists, very brilliant. Put together these patterns and say, we know what's going to happen before it ever happens. Now, if I were really stupid or stubborn, I could say, no, you don't. Um, or I could say, well, that's not fair. You know the future and I don't know the future. And I could be very belligerent and I could be uh, y- you know, resentful of the fact that they know more than I do. Because for me, to tell me, if, I, if you ask me what's... What might happen next week, I would tell you, I haven't even thought about next week. I don't even know because I don't have have the knowledge. I don't have the capability, the resources to know, but these people do. And so they can say fairly accurately, and I know we laugh because they're wrong at the small details. I'm talking about the big picture here. The reason, this is the part I want to mention, the reason that the meteorologist... Can tell me all of these certain details about next week and see the very small minute picture is because they already see the big, big, big picture. They've got that all covered, and so they can now predict what the temperature will be, what the what the what uh, weather, what the uh, rain will be and all that they can predict all of that because they can see the vast and big picture. And put together and predict the patterns, therefore, they, uh, they can um, tell me specifics. Now, I can resist that knowledge, or I can take great comfort in that knowledge and say, wow, I'm thankful for the weather forecaster. It helps me to know how to prepare. It tells me I need to cancel this ball game, because a hurricane is going to bear right down on here, and might blow the stadium away. It lets me be safe and secure. Um, I should, I, I can trust the expertise that they have, and appreciate and appro- appropriate their advice. Again, let me say it: they are available, or they are able to predict the small details, and know the small details because they understand the vastly larger picture. Already, they know that. And this is an illustration to me of Psalm 139 and this heart cry. Where the psalmist says, where could I ever get away from such vast and overwhelming knowledge? Where could I ever flee away from somebody who knows already what's going to happen next week? They know already what's in my heart. They know the place to where I would run or where I would flee. How could I ever evade God? I couldn't. I could never get away from Him, even if I wanted to or even if I tried to. He sees too much. He knows too much. He loves too much. He cares too much. He never lets up. He never backs off. He never uh, loses interest. He never changes focus. God has me always and forever on his heart. That's what he's saying here. Just like a meteorologist is always saying, this is going to come and that's going to come. And they're just observing the big patterns because they, they know, they see it, with the, through the means of all the technology that they have. Let me read this psalm. You're familiar with it. I'm sure you've probably heard it a million times. But it is beautiful, it is powerful, it is searching, and it is, uh, it, is, it, it, it is delicate and it's overwhelming at the same time. Oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my goings out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O oh Lord. You hem me in, behind and before. You've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where could I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. It's, a, it's an interesting uh, thing to me in the Hebrew text. It just, it doesn't say you are there. It just says you. You ever had somebody <laughs> kind of, you feel like they're almost following you around. You go to the grocery store and there they are. And then you go to the barbershop and good night, there they are again. And you say, you? Like, like, there you are again. Everywhere I go, there you are. That's exactly the point. If I go up to heavens, you! If I make my bed in Sheol, the place where the dead people went. You! It's just sort of a, it's just a spontaneous expression that's that's kind of powerful. And it's translated, you are there. And there's nothing wrong with translating it that way. But it's it's just an emotional surprise. It says, wherever I go, I look around and there's God. You, again. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, verse 9, and settle on the far side of the sea, Even there, your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness would not be dark to you. For night will shine like the day, and darkness is as light to you. For you created my... So now he's going from the big, vast, external places that we can run and play and maybe hide. He's going into the inside, to the mind, to the heart. To the body, the the inner recesses of who we are as a human being. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. If I I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was hidden from you. I'm sorry, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. If we didn't have any of the rest of this psalm and we just had that one verse, we could still talk for hours on the responsibility and the comfort and the hope of that one verse, that one phrase. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Again, it's the phrase. I get awake in the morning, you. There you are in my bedroom. There you are at the breakfast table. When I get up, when I go to sleep, you're there. When I get up in the morning. Now, these next couple verses were the ones asked ask about, what are this, what's this stuck in here for? Um, it says, If only you would slay the wicked, O God, away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them, and I count them my enemies. And then he comes back to his meditation, and he says, Search me, O God. And know my heart, test me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If you ever watched a ball game, let's say a baseball game on television, which I'm sure you have, you're probably impressed with how they can come on there with this uh, shot, I suppose it's from a drone, where you see this uh, stadium and this vast crowd, maybe you're kind of looking straight down, it's thousands and thousands and thousands of people, you don't know who any of them are, you can't see any face, but it's just a mass of people, and you're seeing this view, and suddenly, just like that, you're whisked to a close-up of the pitcher on the mound, and maybe his face as he's looking in at home plate, he's getting ready, or maybe it's the batter up there ready to go, and the camera is right on his face and you see the concentration. Or maybe it's a kid up here in a stadium or up in the seat somewhere that a, a foul ball got smacked and they and they got it and they're just hugging this ball and they're so happy. And you see in this in this camera angle, just the most close up work you can you can you can just think what the pitcher's thinking. You can you can see it in their eyes and in the expression. Maybe they 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 got they miss the plate and it's ball four and you See him going like that, because of multiple cameras. Today, because of they like got cameras everywhere, they can go from the infinite to the intimate instantly. When you look at that crowd, this is the this is the infinite panorama. It's everywhere. It's 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 everywhere, but it's nothing particular. And suddenly, another camera goes. And you're right up inside somebody's head. And it's so intimate. This is God. As he he pictures him here, he sees all the vastness of all the worlds that he's created. Not only does he see them, he holds them in his thoughts. He holds them in their place by his word, by his will. The universes exist. Our world, our lives exist because God is up there holding it all together by wanting it, by willing that it happen. His word brought it forth. I picture God on creation day sort of having a thought and saying, "Uh uh-huh. And and, and there was the earth. And God said, "Uh uh-huh. And there was the sun and the moon and, and all of these stages and steps as the Lord reasoned and thought, they came they came into being. <clears throat> and so this psalm just points out that unlike us, God is capable and in fact cannot help but exist in a realm that is both infinite and intimate. All of the far reaches are held in Him. And all of the thoughts of the most degraded person he's aware of, always, 24-7, as they say, 365, as they say, without break, without interruption, without distraction. And so this psalmist says, wow, how could I ever escape? How could I ever, how could I ever ignore such a creator? Who does not ignore me. It's beyond amazing to me. That God is both infinite and intimate. And yet this is the picture. And the understanding that we are given of, of God in his word. Not everybody understands God like that. Some folks think God has his, his limits. And they can even outsmart him. Um, some folks feel that God is so infinite that he don't really know them or care about them. And so some religions, such as Buddhism, uh, are, are, are just basically philosophies. Because they don't think God would ever get close or personal. Or they don't even know if there really is a personal being, such as we would call God. So this first part, it seems to me, is pointing out that God's interest in you and me is simply overwhelming. Overwhelming. There is, uh, there is no way that we can describe, even comprehend, how interested God is in us. This word search is a word, um, a word that means to bore down, to dig. Go down underneath the surface as if you were mining for metal or uh, minerals or if you were digging for water. Oh, Lord, you have dug down deep. That's what it's saying. You have dug down into me. You have bored a hole right through me. The the interest that you have. Here's here's a picture of a guy who's interested in his yard. How wonderful. Um, Actually, it's my yard, and and they just come out there and took the picture. You know I just. (laughs) If it was my yard... It would be a lot of weeds and dandelions and stuff. Anyway, it's a beautiful lawn, right? And this guy's totally absorbed. I take it in mowing his lawn. Good for him. What he probably never thinks of, pays any attention to, he probably mows his lawn all summer long and never probably one time even stops to think, I wonder what's down underneath the surface of my yard, of my lawn. Maybe there's water down there. Maybe there's ore down there. Maybe there's diamonds or coal or... Gas down there. But this guy, he don't really care exactly if the grass is mowed in a nice, neat swath. He's interested in the same patch of turf, but he's not interested in the surface. He wants to go down deep, right? So it is with God. Other people can treat you lightly. Other people might say... uh you know, the most dismissive things and you realize, well, you don't really matter a great deal. Maybe they're friendly, maybe they're kind, but you don't really matter to them that much. But the psalmist is saying God bores, digs, goes down underneath the surface. God made the surface of my body. He talks about this. But God cares about way, way deep below the surface in my mind and my heart and my destiny and my intentions and my motives and all these things that are way, way buried, buried way, way down in what we sometimes call the heart. This is God. You have searched me. You come along and you don't, you don't just notice the surface. You care about what's 100 feet down or, or 1,000 feet down below the surface. You have searched me and you know, and have known me. God's interest in me is overwhelming. <clears throat> In, in verse five, he says, uh, "You hem me in behind and before, and you've laid your hand upon me." This, this is, uh, this is speaking kind of of a pursuit. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I don't know how to put. I don't know how to process this idea that God has sort of a net around me, and if I go forward or I go back or I try to dip down or rise up. It doesn't really particularly matter because he's got me covered, he's got me hemmed in, he he will he will pursue me, and what I take of that is of my own making, whether I welcome it or whether I fight against it, and I'll come back to that in a second. But the the fact is that he's that the psalmist is bringing out is that the Lord is there, and he and he is there. Um, is there as he says in front of me and behind me so there's there's no thought of ever really um, there's no thought of ever somehow slipping away from the knowledge and the interest and the direction of God and the usefulness that God has for our lives God is concerned about us God is is uh, is never never stops never lets up in his in his concern for us. Where could I go? Where could I flee? No matter where I where I go, you are there. I want to read a, a paragraph. This is from a sermon from Charles Spurgeon many, many years ago, uh pastor over in England, and uh and he's talking about this overwhelming knowledge and concern and um and the net that God has spread around his universe and his people. Think, uh, and, and his knowledge that has no end. No inattention prevents him from observing. He has surveys the past and the present and the future. No defect of memory or of judgment obscures his comprehension. In his remembrance are stored not only the transactions of this world, but all worlds in the universe... Not only of a period of time, but of eternity. Not just a thousand years have passed that have passed since the earth was created. But time without end is also before him. Eternity past and eternity to come are at the same moment in his eye. And with that eternal eye, he surveys infinity. How amazing, how inconceivable. There's a mystery to this. That we do not learn to solve after years of meditation. As God is a spirit without dimensions or parts or susceptibility of division, he is equally, that is, fully present in all places. At any given moment, he is not present partly here or partly at the utmost skirt of the farthest system that revolves around the dimmest telescopic star as if there were a partition scattered through the universe. He is present with the totality of His glorious properties at every point of space. The results, undeniably, come from the simple fact that God is spirit. All that God is is in one place, He is in all places. And all there is of God in every place. I'm sorry. All there is of God is in every place. Indeed, His presence has no dependence on space or matter. I want you to get this. His presence, the presence of God everywhere, is not dependent on the word everywhere. Space or matter do not count. His essential presence were the same if all universal matter were blotted out. Only by a figure can God, said to dwell, can God be said to dwell in the universe. For the universe is comprehended by Him and all the boundless glory of God. Is essentially present at every spot in his creation, however various may be the manifestations of this glory at other or at different times and places. So here we have a case, Spurgeon says, that ought to instruct and sober those who, in their shallow philosophy, demand a religion without mystery. That would be a religion without God. God's love for me is immeasurable. This is the passages, the verses that talk about the creation of of the superintendency of God in the exquisite, amazing path of the human body and its formation. You know, we've advanced so much that a kid today, a kid knows more than probably a lot of adults knew in the 17th century, 18th century. A kid knows about hygiene. A, ki- a, a, a kid knows about many medical things just because we've advanced so greatly in our knowledge of the body. And yet, the most sophisticated surgeon and, and um, person who studies the cell of the body will still admit that even today with the vast knowledge we have, the mysteries are unfathomably beyond what we're aware. I, I, I heard, this, <laughs> heard this story about a surgeon who took his car to the mechanic. And the mechanic was down in the engine. I mean, he's way down in up to his elbows. He's down in the valves, and he's working. And the surgeon is out there watching him, you know, in the shop, just enjoying watching the mechanic. And the mechanic says to the surgeon, uh, You know, I know I don't make as much money as you, de- as you make, But uh, really, this work, when you think about it in here, in the valves and the cylinders, this is just as complicated as the work that you do as a surgeon. And the surgeon said, Well, perhaps it is. But if you want to make the kind of money I make, you need to be able to fix it while it's running. I thought it was funny. The body's running. We're not just a mechanical marvel. We run. And the, the love that God has poured into this is unmeasurable. Um, our body goes from unformed to formed. Our frame goes from hidden to revealed. And this process, this mysterious process of pregnancy and of birth, In the animal world, in the human world, um, he's he's marveling at the love that God so tenderly built into this process. The whole time the human parents are wondering, is this going to be a boy or a girl? Is this going to be a scholar or is this going to be a workman, a person who works with their hands? Is this going to be a wayward child? Is this going to be a loving child? All the unknowns before that baby is born, God knows them all. And, and he, has, uh, he has combined the genetics and the generation and the family. I often think at funerals, as I ponder people's lives, um, how was it and why was it that they were born at the time in history into the place of history, into the unique family and the community that they were born. There was a purpose. There was a, there was a reason that God took all that combination... And deposited it here. And that's the next part, the next verse, where he says, God doesn't just enjoy doing his artwork or his mechanical project. He's not just a surgeon at work or a mechanic at work. God has a purpose for every part. Every wrench that hangs on the pegboard. Every tool or instrument that's on the floor. Everything in God's workshop has a purpose and an instrument. And each part, each person has a part to play. You were born for a reason. I can't tell you what it is. I struggle to figure out mine. I'm simply saying that this verse says, every day of our lives was thought through and planned out and prepared for before any of them even occurred. You didn't come by accident. Perhaps your parents thought you did. That's very common. Whoops, they say, but not God. It just doesn't doesn't, uh, happen that way with him. And so because he has a plan for us, then that plan is non-negotiable. If you want to get the best out of life and the greatest out of life, stop and pray this prayer. Father, show me your will. How can I do your will? Show me what it is that you have for me to do. You'll be farther, you'll be farther ahead. You'll be great more greatly blessed than if you just hammer along saying, what do I want? What do I want to accomplish? What do I want to have? And so forth. There's a there is a, a plan that the Lord has for each of our lives. <clears throat> and furthermore, he says in verse 18, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, in verse, yes, in verse 17 and 18, God thinks about this. And he thinks of me and he thinks of you. This is very humbling, to realize, you know, when we get awake in the morning, um, and we pray, we think of God that He's already there thinking of us. And He says in this amazing par or this amazing description, if if I could if I could take all of the thoughts that God has of me, and each one was a grain of sand, and I could just throw them down one at a time. Every time God thinks of me, He says, I'd have a beach. You know as a parent how often you think of your children. You know as a husband or a wife how often you think of your spouse when they're away. You think about them. You you worry about them. You wonder about them. You rejoice over them. And you, just, you think of them all the time because you love them. So does God think of us and He loves us. And so what does... What this boils down to, it seems to me, is this. You know, uh, if God knows everything and He pursues every person, then it seems to me that we're either going to respond by running away or by yielding and saying, Woohoo! He found me. I suppose all of us love the drama of a good detective story or movie. A crime has been committed, but nobody's quite sure who did it or why they did. And then this masterful, knowledgeable, square jawed, steely eyed detective shows up. And he combs through all of this stuff trying to make sense out of the chaos. And finally, some clues kind of lead him to why this perhaps happened and to why it leads now to a who. And so now the story shifts to finding the perpetrator. Somebody murdered this person. Somebody stole this. And so now the detective starts off trying to find that person to bring them to justice. And inevitably, you know... The story goes that the crook always leaves a clue and the detective snaps it up and now he has a lead and now the chase is on and usually that's when the music changes and the chase is on. The fugitive twists and dodges and hides and runs but the detective is a hound dog following that scent flushing him from hiding, anticipating their moves, closer and closer to finding them and catching them. As we hear the news or we read the book or we watch the movie, our chest is pounding at that point and our heart's in our throat. We're quite certain that the brains and the resource of this this officer and the law that he has on his side are going to prevail. If the guy was smart, we say he'd just turn himself in because he's going to get caught. Inevitably, they're going to catch him. We're watching from the sidelines. You know, the FBI used to have a motto, we always get our man. And we feel that. We believe that was we're watching this thing unfold or we're reading about it. And then sometimes there's this high-speed chase where they actually think they can get away from the cops or the, that are pursuing them. And we just kind of smirk and we say, well, even if you got away from this officer, he's already radioed up ahead and there's a spike strip waiting for you up the next intersection. You're just not too bright to think you're ever going to get away. These guys are just going to keep following you and surrounding you and suffocating you until they have you because there's too many resources on their side and they will discover you and they will apprehend you. Reagan, uh, President Reagan used to say, you can run but you can't hide, was his way of, of communicating this. Today, I would not want to be a criminal today because there's drones and there's cameras with facial recognition and heat signature recognition and all kinds of crazy stuff. It's not a good day to be a crook in, in, in these days and times today. But the chase, when the detective is pursuing the villain in his efficient and calculated and dogged manner, and the capture is certainly drawing near, that's when we identify either with the culprit on the run and we say, oh no, oh no, he's going to get him. Or we say, yeah, because we identify with the guy who's pursuing. And we say, yeah, he's he's dead meat now, they're going to get him. It depends on your own feeling. It depends on your own response Are you a fugitive from the law, or are you a follower of the law? In other words, do you have resentment about the fact that the guy knows everything you do, and he follows you everywhere, and he's going to surround you, he's going to smother you, he's going to catch you? Are you resentful about that, or do you draw comfort from that? And you say, you know, if someday I needed help, I'd be glad that detective was nearby. If someday I had Alzheimer's, and I wandered out on the street, and I got lost... I'd be glad to have a guy like him because he'd figure me out. He'd find me. He'd know where I'm at. He would. He would follow the clues, and we'd take comfort in the immense and overwhelming knowledge that that per, that detective or that policeman had. It would fill me with joy and with comfort. And and so the psalm is saying, if you're a fugitive from God or whether you're a follower of God, that. The pursuit is undeniable. The detective is on the beat. And you can either, you can either, uh, you, you can either be, be sweating and resisting or you can be uh, comforted from that. And so, um, I'm sorry, I don't have time really to, to, to get into this uh, phrase about, about the evil man. I don't know why it's inserted there. The question said, why is this phrase inserted there? I, I assume that in, in his writing, as he thought these, these, these tremendous thoughts of the, of the, of the in, infinite God involved in his life, I suppose it just made him mad that some people try to interrupt with that and interfere with that and take advantage of those who want only to follow God's will. And so he said, look, Lord, just, just to remind you, your enemies are my enemies I can't stand the way they try to mess up your plan, because he was realizing what a great plan God has. But um, the the closing part of this psalm just just talks about how it is that God is hemming me in. He surrounds me, and and how it is that um, there is no place or no method by which. I could somehow evade God. He said, you know, if I could turn myself into a light beam, a photon, and speed out of here at the speed of light, I wouldn't get anywhere. God would, have, God would catch me. God would be in front of me. He'd be over there sticking his hand out my bumper and slowing me down. If I, if I traveled on the wings of the dawn to the far side of the sea, what a comfort. What a joy to know that even if I'm lost and I'm wandering around and I say, how did I get over here at the, on the far side of the sea? And I perhaps don't have a clue why or how I got there or what confusion has taken over my life. Guess what? God has been there and he knows. He's there. What a great comfort. And so he he closes by saying, in lieu of this, in light of that, I just come to you humbly and say, Lord, I belong to you. My destiny is to return into a greater awareness of your presence. So search me now, draw me close, keep me, hold on to me, hold fast to me. Lead me in a way to Alam, Olam. A way that is everlasting. Lead me in a way that that never ends. That always, forever and eternally has you as my friend, my benefactor, my searcher, my deliverer, my companion. So, it's a, a, it's a reminder to us that this life is just part of the picture. Can we pray for him? Lord, I don't even know what to say much except to say, Amen. Amen, let it be that you have searched us and known us. Therefore, we say, continue, search me and know me with great joy. Because we don't want to be fugitives, we want to be followers. Through Jesus we pray.